Okay, scripture reading for today is Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. But a certain Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. And he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I say to you, Stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action should be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did answer the prayer for boldness. Lord, you gave great boldness to your apostles, uh, your followers in the early days of the church uh, to speak that word and to rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Lord, um, we pray that uh, we would hear these words and desire the same. Lord, we would desire to be counted worthy to suffer for you. Lord, 
to, to share in what you experienced during your time on earth uh, as we desire to share in your glory, Lord, one day. Um, we thank you that uh, you're sovereign over all these circumstances. You are sovereign over the hearts of the, the party of the Sadducees, Lord, and you preserve the lives of your people uh, for the time that you saw fit. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things. We pray that you would bless this message, uh, bless us who hear it, uh, to be attentive and to receive the good things of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. My title for this morning is taken from verse 20, Stand and Speak the Whole Message of This Life. Back in chapter 4 of Acts, God miraculously healed a man who had been lame from birth through Peter and John, and the high priestly clan of the Sadducees ordered those two apostles, along with the lame man apparently, to be arrested and to appear before the Sanhedrin the same Jewish high court that had demanded and obtained the crucifixion of Jesus just weeks before. But because all of Jerusalem knew about the the miracle of the healing of this lame man, the Jewish authorities feared an uprising uh, if they dealt with the apostles the way they very much wanted to. So they decided to release them after first warning them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. But of course, Peter and John told them there in chapter 4 that that they could not stop speaking what they had seen and heard. And speak, they did. Um, We saw last time in Acts 4, verse 33, that with great power they were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Through the bold witness of the apostles and through the many powerful signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit was accomplishing through them, very many new believers were being added to the church day by day. In chapter 5, earlier in chapter 5, before the passage that we're looking at this morning, after the painful incident with Ananias and Sapphira, Luke yet again said in verse 14, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. And it also says that all who were sick or afflicted by demons were were being brought to Peter and the other apostles and were being healed. Now, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, we see that the persecution against the newborn church that reared its head at the beginning of chapter 4, has come back into focus. Verse 17 and 18 says, But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles, and they put them in public jail. The apostles, if you recall, had been repeatedly filled by the Holy Spirit before this point, submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit's control as willing instruments to accomplish Christ's work on earth. There's a very different kind of control and filling that's going on here. The Sadducees were controlled by their own zealous and jealous affection for the wrong things. And what were those wrong things? Well, I believe they were the the same things 
that had provoked them to, to try to kill Jesus right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, back in John chapter 11. The same religious leaders back in that chapter came together in an earlier session of the Sanhedrin, and here's what they said of Jesus. They said, if we let him go on like this, all our men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We talked about that a little bit last time, but the jealousy that controls the Sadducees here in Acts 5 is very much the same, I believe, as it was there in John 11. They expected that any threat that this movement had posed to their place and their nation had ended once Jesus was crucified. But now, people were being added to the church at a staggering rate. And the miracles were continuing. It seemed as if killing Jesus had made the movement infinitely stronger than it was before they killed him. And of course, because of the resurrection of Jesus and the many resurrection appearances of Jesus, that's exactly, exactly what happened. The fierce protection of these religious leaders was not for the God whom they claimed to represent. It was for themselves, their place, their nation. They were zealous for their authority, for their influence, their power over the Jewish people. And I should add, for the clout with the Roman government that that power gave them, especially within this, in the city of Jerusalem. We already saw how much clout that ended up being because these leaders of the Jews managed to get a Roman governor to crucify someone he didn't want to crucify. That's power. When they arrested Peter and other apostles a second time, they threw them not into detention in the temple, but into a public jail, and I believe that was to maximize their shame. They wanted them to have a perp walk into the jail. Verses 19 and 20 tell us how this worked out for the, for the Sanhedrin. It says, But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said to them, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. The next morning when the Sanhedrin sent their officers to the temple to to fetch the prisoners and bring them to stand before the high court, uh, this, the prisoners were simply gone without a trace of their escape. The prison gates were closed and locked, and the guards were still standing, stationed right outside those gates as they had been all night. But the prisoners were gone. Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail here, but he certainly tells us more than enough for us to know that this was a miracle at a grand scale. Think about what happened here for a minute. The Sadducees, the top dogs in the Sanhedrin, were anti-supernaturalists. They did not believe that there was any such thing as angels or miracles. So what did God do to free the apostles? He sent an angel to do a miracle. A miracle, by the way, that the Sadducees really could not deny. How would you like to have been one of the officers of the temple guard? <laughs> 
that morning sent to escort the prisoners from the prison to the gathering of the Sanhedrin. And I should mention here that, that Luke points out that this was a gathering of the whole Senate. It was a gathering of the entire, the entire full complement of the Sanhedrin. So all those semicircles that formed the Sanhedrin seats, they were full that morning. I can picture those guards are saying, okay, guys, how are we going to explain this? We can't mention angels or miracles. Let's just stick with the, the bare facts and leave it to them to come to the inevitable conclusion. They go and they say to the Sanhedrin, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened up, no one was inside. You figure it out. <laughs> Verse 24 tells us that the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were greatly perplexed about them as to what this would become. I love that wording. They were not merely at a loss to explain what had happened. They were afraid of how this would affect them. In his comments about this passage, Daryl Bach rightly points out that we must not take this miraculous release from prison as a pattern uh, for what the apostles and followers of Christ should expect from that point forward. A very large part of this book, in fact, chapters 21 to 28, narrates what happened with the apostle Paul when he was arrested in Jerusalem decades after this. And Paul was not released except for a short time. He spent years, years imprisoned by the Romans in the city of Jerusalem. And then he lost his life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus, just as both James and Peter soon would. Countless other faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ in the years since these events have lost their freedom and their lives precisely because they would not stop talking about Jesus. Precisely because they would not do what the Sanhedrin commanded these men to do. When it serves the advancement of the gospel for Christ's faithful witnesses to be protected from imprisonment or released from imprisonment, then God will see to those outcomes. But, beloved, very often in the history of the church, it has served the advancement of the gospel for God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors, not to be released from imprisonment and even for them to be killed. Those outcomes are exactly as, as much determined by God as was this outcome, this release. We need to bear that in mind. The fact that God's purpose in all of this was the advancement of the gospel is abundantly clear in the second half of verse 20. In the commission that Peter and the other apostles receive here from God through the angel who released them. The angel says to them, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Go right back where you were when you were arrested yesterday and do the same thing that you were doing then. I love that the New American Standard capitalizes the word life 
when it says the whole message of this life. The capitalization is appropriate because the message of this life is the message of Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. In him is the life, and the life is the light of men, John chapter 1. The first part of this commission, this commission delivered through an angel, is to stand, to stand. Stand means that we it means that we are to be unmoved and unmovable in our proclamation. That means that persecution changes absolutely nothing about our message or our assignment. One of the many wonderful things about our assignment as ambassadors of Jesus is that our job description never changes. Never for 2,000 years. The world around us changes and shifts at a, at a dizzying rate, but we stand on the rock of Christ. The spirit of the age in whatever age we find ourselves has zero effect on our assignment. And that's, that's vitally, vitally important. The second part of this commission is to speak. Stand and speak the whole message of this life. And that means that we are to proclaim all of what God has made known in both Testaments about the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the long-promised Christ. We must not miss the fact that at every turn, Peter's proclamation, whether it is to a multitude gathered at the temple on the day of Pentecost or standing before the highest Jewish court that existed, his proclamation without fail comes with a condemning accusation of sin and a command to decisively turn from rejection of Jesus to faith in Jesus. The whole message of this life that God has left us here on earth to proclaim starts with the clear declaration that all Human beings are lost and dead in sin, condemned to death. We are all rebels against God. There was nothing special about the Sanhedrin. There are far too many Christians, especially here in the United States, who seem more devoted to adjusting the faith once and for all delivered to the saints than to proclaiming the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. They seem obsessed with figuring out how to make uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ palatable, easier to swallow. In a culture whose hatred for God has reached a level never before seen in this nation. Maybe if we talk only about the love of Jesus and not the fierce judgment of Jesus, more people will be willing to consider the gospel. Or maybe if we talk only about how Jesus gets us and not about what his perfect holiness and righteousness demands of us, maybe then people will, will be receptive. Or maybe if we unhitch the New Testament from all that Old Testament, all that harsh stuff in the Old Testament, maybe then people will be receptive. Or maybe... 
If we talk about how valuable and how beautiful every human being is to God so people don't have to feel like they have to have a negative impression of themselves in order to be Christians. I don't know about you guys, I am so sick and tired of hearing, hearing preachers, professing Christian pe preachers, tell people how wonderful they are to God without Christ. As if God owes it to them to save them. There's not a hint of that in God's word. You know what makes you beautiful in the eyes of God? Christ in you. Amen. Professing Christians have come up with countless lovely sounding compromises to the gospel, always declaring that they are doing so for the sake of the gospel. But beloved, if we do not preach the whole message that God has delivered to us, we are robbing our fellow sinners of the only message that is the power of God to salva for salvation to everyone who believes. We don't get to adjust the message. And what's so cool is the message we bear is the exact same message that Peter was preaching, that Paul was preaching, that John was preaching, that James was preaching. Our assignment, the, the, task of, the task of God's messengers has never been to make the gospel easy for people to accept. If you haven't figured it out yet, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest offense possible to the arrogant hearts of self-exalting sinners, like we all once were. Only a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner will ever bring that sinner to trust in Jesus as his only merit ever in the eyes of our perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God. God has to bring us, he has to humble us, and he has to bring us to the point where we, we agree with him that we are lost and dead in our sins and that dead people have nothing to offer. And guys, that is part and parcel of the gospel. You can't trust Jesus to save you if you disagree with God about what he saved you from. Our assignment is to stand on the same rock on which the prophets and apostles and people of God have always stood, the rock who is Jesus, the long-promised Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to stand right there, unmoved and immovable, and to speak the whole truth of the life that is found in Jesus and in him alone. That's exactly what Peter and the other apostles were doing the day that they were re-arrested in Acts chapter 5. After being arrested a second time in less than 24 hours, they were finally brought before the highest court in the Jewish religion. And again, I'm sorry, but I can't help but laugh when I think about the irony of re-arresting a group of men who just disappeared from the jail that they had been stashed in. The gate was locked after they were gone. In verse 28, the Sanhedrin reminds Peter and the apostles of their previous demands, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. 
and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What a verse. The, the part about how they had filled Jerusalem with their teaching was meant by the Sanhedrin to be a shaming accusation. It was a badge of honor. I can't imagine any greater commendation that the Sanhedrin could have paid to these men. The last part of the Sanhedrin's indictment here is, is priceless. And, and I have to tell you, to me, it's just stunning. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Hadn't they already seen to that? They're talking about the blood of Jesus. They're saying, you intend to hold us guilty for the shedding of this man's blood. Well, they were. So are we, by the way. Now, but, but the truth is, the men of this court had already seen to that themselves, hadn't they? Talk, talk about short memories. Listen to what Matthew records about these same men here in, back in Matthew 27. As they demanded, they, they actually put the words in the mouths of the multitude so that the multitude would demand the following. Listen to this. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. This is Matthew 27, starting at verse 20. But the governor, that's Pilate, answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, well, why? What evil has he done? They kept shouting all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the multitude and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. In other words, see what I'm doing. I'm innocent. Now listen, all the people answered Pilate and they said, his blood be on us and on our children. Wow, is right. His blood be on us and on our children. The men who put those words, his blood be on us and on our children, into the mouths of that multitude are the very same men who now say to Peter and John, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They already demanded that. But they are not alone. They are not alone. It's so easy to point our fingers at them and say, wow, that, it's just staggering that they could have that kind of arrogance. And, and, that, and they could be that disconnected from recognizing what was true of their own hearts. But beloved, the blood of Jesus is upon the head of every human being who has ever walked this earth. And there are two, only two possibilities when it comes to the effect of that precious blood on each individual. We all start out with the poured out blood of Jesus upon us, marking us out as eternally condemned, guilty of shedding that blood because of our rebellion against God. But for every single person who trusts in Jesus with childlike faith, that same poured out blood turns that crimson stain to perfect white, washing that person forever clean 
completely forgiven of his sin, forever clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every person falls into one of those two categories. There are no other. Listen again to the response these religious leaders received from Peter and the apostles in verses 29 to 32. This is what it looks like when Christ's ambassadors stand and speak the whole truth of this life. Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Sanhedrin had heard those words before. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. I I challenge you to go back through the first five chapters of Acts and look at how many times Peter said that to these same men. The one that you put to death, the one that you crucified, he's the one that we represent. He's the one we're talking about. He is the long-promised Christ. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We could do a whole message on those verses all by themselves, but I'm going to let them stand as they are. Verse 33 says of the Sanhedrin, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and were intending to slay them. Now, at first glance, I couldn't help wondering if that phrase, cut to the quick, was somehow connected or related to, uh, to the phrase, uh, pierced to the heart, that we saw back in chapter 2. Let me tell you, it is not. It is not. They, these, the members of the Sanhedrin felt no conviction or remorse here. The only other time that the phrase cut to the quick is used in the New Testament is in Acts 7.54, right after Stephen scorching indictment against these same men on Christ's behalf. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. And the very next thing that happened is that they stoned Stephen to death. These Jewish religious leaders were definitely not pierced with godly contrition and remorse for their rejection of Jesus. They were infuriated. They were enraged against Peter and the apostles and thus against Christ. In Acts 5, verses 34 to 40, Luke turns the platform over to a man named Gamaliel who also was a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, obviously, of very great reputation and and influence. Luke tells us that Gamaliel was, quote, a certain Pharisee, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. We learn later in Acts chapter 22 that this same man, Gamaliel, mentored Paul when he was still Saul of Tarsus, when he was a young man growing up in Jerusalem, And Gamaliel mentored Paul in the law of Moses and uh, apparently did a pretty good job of that. I think it's fascinating. I I think it's fascinating to see what what God does with Gamaliel and through Gamaliel here. And I can't help wondering if we're going to see Gamaliel in the kingdom. 
Gamaliel begins his address to the Sanhedrin saying, men of Israel, same words Peter used, take care what you propose to do with these men. He is sternly advising them to stop and to think before they take action against Peter and the apostles. And then in support of his warning, he reminds them of two previous attempts at movements that were intended to, in effect, to usurp the authority of the Sanhedrin, to draw Jews off into into some other allegiance. The first was led by a man named Thutis who, quote, rose up claiming to be somebody. Gamaliel points out that Thutis managed to build a following of about 400 men, but then he was slain and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. The second movement that Gamaliel cites was led by Judas of Galilee, who tried to build a movement on the day, in the days of the census. He drew away some people after him, but then he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. After presenting these two examples of failed uprisings that that the men of the Sanhedrin would have known about. Gamaliel then gets to the point in verses 38 and 39. His counsel to them is stay away from these men and let them alone. His rationale for that advice is this, for if this plan of action, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. And finally, his warning to the Sanhedrin in the last part of verse 39 is this. In effect, if you continue in your panicked effort to forcibly put this movement to an end, and it turns out the movement is of God, you will be found to be fighting against Almighty God. And you don't want to go there. These are wise wise words. What makes them wise is the same thing that makes all true wisdom wise. It begins and it ends with the fear of God. Gamaliel's words acknowledge that God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. He is so sovereign that he will take care of this matter, and men don't have to. And his words also acknowledge that all men even the men of this highest court will give account for their actions before the Most High God. The reason that the Sanhedrin was so furious against Peter and the apostles is because they feared the effect that this new movement would have on their place and their nation. But it is always, always foolish to fear the impact that mere men will have on your well-being because the simple reality, friends, is that mere men have no impact on your well-being ever. You know why that is? Because mere men control nothing and God is sovereign over everything. God alone controls all blessing and all curse, all well-being and all calamity. He's the only entity in existence who is worthy of your fear. There is no other. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
The plans of sinful men may prosper for a time, but in the end, it is God's agenda that will be realized in his creation and no other agenda. You can count on that. Gamaliel's words are as valuable to you and me right now as they would have been to these men if they had had the humility to hear and to heed them. The mission that Jesus has handed to us as his church is not to campaign against false religions and philosophies and movements. It is to proclaim the true one. Now, I'm not talking about false teaching within the church. There are very, there are very clear and strong exhortations in the New Testament that we are to deal with divisiveness, we are to deal with, with wolves in sheep's clothing, we are to deal with falsehood within the church. But it is not our assignment to rid the world of falsehood except by one means, and that is the faithful preaching of the truth of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And if we, if we get confused, if we, if we conflate that mission with anything else, we miss our mission. I had a Bible study with, a, I mentioned this before, but I had a Bible study with a coworker many years ago uh, when I was in the IT business. He was from a, a devout, multi-generational Catholic family, Roman Catholic family. After a few months of um, working through the book of Romans every Wednesday morning before work, he started saying, wow, I was always told this, but look at what the Bible says. Not long after that, he trusted Jesus as his Savior. Soon after that, he married a godly woman, and the two of them have been faithfully walking with the Lord ever since. That's been decades. I never once talked with that young man about what was wrong with Roman Catholicism, never once. I didn't need to. All we did together week after week was go to the pure, unadulterated milk of God's Word, and the Holy Spirit took care of exposing the errors in Catholic doctrine without me saying a word. I don't want to make a broad generalization here and say it's never appropriate to point out errors and what people, you're, when you're talking to somebody and they've been bombarded or with, you know, with some lie. I'm not saying it's never appropriate. What I'm saying is that's really not our mission. Our mission is to stand and speak the whole truth of this life. And I am, of course, aware that the errors of Catholicism have gone very much further in the world than the tiny, short-lived movements of Thutis and Judas mentioned in Acts 5, but the truth of God and the God of truth are and always will be infinitely more powerful than any belief system devised by men or corrupted by men. Romans 6 verses 19 and 20 is familiar to our children. It says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The word translated innocent there means unmixed. Be unmixed in what is evil. When Paul commands us to be wise in what is good and not to mix in wisdom about what is evil, 
He's saying you and I don't have to master falsehood in order to do battle for the truth. And it's important that we know that. It's important that we know that. We just need to know and proclaim the truth. And very soon, as agents of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, who will soon crush Satan under his feet, we'll get to crush him under ours. Only as agents. Verse 40 tells us that the Sanhedrin, quote, took Gamaliel's advice, but it's clear that that was only in the most superficial, <laughs> in the most superficial way. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Doesn't sound like complete buy-in to me. <laughs> and then they ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. Just as he has done over and over, Luke ends his account of this episode with a progress report on the newborn church of Jesus Christ. He says, so they went on their way, verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day. I assume that means starting that day. They went right back into the temple, probably to the same area, Solomon, the portico of Solomon, that, by the way, Jesus liked to hang out in, John, I think, chapter 11. And they did what they had been doing when they were arrested. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Luke is not saying that the disciples deserved to bear the name of Jesus. Nobody does. He's saying they considered their share in his sufferings to be the most desirable thing that could be true of them. Again, in 1 Peter, I mentioned last week, 1 Peter 4.14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We were talking about that in our Thursday night meeting, uh, young adults meeting a while back. That word rest means what it sounds like. When, when you and I are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, he relaxes in us. He rests on us because he's got us right where he wants us. He's got us right where he wants us, right where God will do the most extraordinary things in our hearts and through us as his instruments. When we are suffering, when we are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ, We've seen over and over again in these early chapters of Acts that at the very heart of the gospel we are here to proclaim is this thing about preaching Jesus as the Christ. You and I are supposed to be telling the world that Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, is the long-promised Messiah. He is the very one that God has been talking about ever since God started talking to human beings. In just the first five chapters of this book, we've seen thus far that Jesus is the one that the prophet Joel was talking about in Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament when he prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on all mankind. He, Jesus is the one who did that. He is the one whom David was talking about in Psalm 16 when he spoke of the Holy One who would not undergo, undergo decay in the grave because he'd be resurrected. In Psalm 110... 
when he spoke of the one who would ascend into heaven to the right hand of God until God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet, David was talking about Jesus. He is the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 3, he is the one God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets from ancient time. He is the one through whom our sins would be wiped away. He is the preeminent prophet whom Moses said God would raise up to whose word all mankind must submit. He is the stone which the builders rejected, spoken of in Psalm 118. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Son of God, whom God whom David spoke of in Psalm 2, the one against whom the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things, the one against whom the rulers, rulers named Herod and Pilate, gathered together in Jerusalem, the city of God, to oppose. Jesus is that long-promised Christ. And brothers and sisters, I will say again to you, and I will say it many times as we go through the book of Acts, if that's not part of our gospel, we are not preaching the whole message of this life. The Bible is its own, its own greatest attestation. It is its own greatest apologetic. Dozens of men writing over a period of more than 1,500 years saying the same things about the same person before they happened. It cannot be the contrivance of men. The Bible is absolutely and necessarily miraculous. And when we leave that out of our gospel message, when we don't say that God has been talking about Jesus ever since he started talking to people, we are leaving a huge piece of the gospel out. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 that says this is the gospel that we preach by which you heard, by which you were saved. It says twice, it is according to the Old Testament scriptures. We don't get to leave that out. There is a simple and wonderfully straightforward command in Jeremiah 23, 28. It's actually just part of that verse. It is a command that I pray with all my heart will describe what remains of my days on this earth. It says, let him who has my word speak my word in truth. Let him who has my word speak my word in truth. And that phrase, in truth, it means without change or alteration of any kind. We, you and I, are called to stand and to speak the word of the crucified and resurrected Jesus, the long-promised King of kings and Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, just as we have been privileged to hear Peter do over and over in these early chapters of Acts. We are to stand and speak the message of sin and righteousness and judgment and of redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. The gospel that we find presented over and over in both testaments of God's word is the exact same message that you and I have been commissioned by Jesus to proclaim to this present generation of lost human beings. We need to stop agonizing, beloved, over cultural relevance. And we need to simply stand and speak the same gospel of Jesus Christ that his people have been standing and speaking from the very beginning. The whole message 
in truth without compromise or adjustment of any kind. Loving Father, we ask that you would accomplish that through us. Make us bold as, as the apostles and early, early children of Christ asked of you. Make us bold and make us courageous to stand firm, to be unmoved and immovable, and to speak the whole message of this life without changing any of it. Do this work in us, we pray most earnestly. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.